under the skin. Have a look, but never smell it. Listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand, which asks what's beneath the surface of people we admire, ideas that define our time, and the history that we are told. Today I'll be talking to Paul Gilroy. Professor Paul Gilroy is uh, an academic who's written, well, actually, I've done some research this morning and there are too many books for, us to, for me to prepare correctly for this interview, so I focused on a few like uh, After Empire. Between Camps, The Black Atlantic and There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack, which I believe is a double negative, which would mean there is a bit of black in the Union Jack. He's married to the writer-photographer and academic Ron Ware. Uh, I mean, it says here where you live, but there's no point going into... Let's not go into that. Let's give you some anonymity (laughs) and obviously you're a family member. Do I call you Paul or do I call you Professor Paul? Please call me Paul. I don't really... Of course, when you were a professor, but professor doesn't mean what it used to mean. So, well, Paul, would you, please. I, I mean, the thing is, I do quite like saying it. Oh, OK. Well, then say it then. I don't object at all. It's because, it, I mean, I immediately feel like I'm talking to mm-hmm. a professor and mm-hmm. it elevates yeah. my own sense of myself. Sure. Professor, I, the reason that I'm doing this podcast is because I've started going to university, Savage University, as it turns out. The reason I started going to Savage University is because a year or so ago I got involved in politics, asked questions about democracy, the value of democracy, the way that we're governed, the power of the state versus the power of people. Subsequent to that, I sort of realised, there were a couple of times where I realised I was out on a peninsula of ignorance flailing wildly in the face of incredible opposition, I reached back into my quiver, as it were, and I thought, I ain't got sufficient arrows. Now, I I want to arm myself over the course of uh, these podcasts. The reason I want to talk to you is because you are one of the defining academics of racial politics over the last few decades, uh, having crossed over into pop culture as well. One of the things I read says that you're as significant as, like, Ian Wright. In uh, in black politics, that can't be bad, can it? Uh, and like and other sort of just pop cultural figures. So, can you tell me what's at what point like uh, should we enter this discourse, this conversation about race in our country, Britain, right now? But sort of beyond that, what do you think is I my my raison d'etre in this podcast is to make these ideas accessible. What do you think we should all know, given that you're you know for a start now talking to a white person from the media? Well, I think that. You mentioned your own ignorance. Mm. I suppose I think it's good to start with how ignorance reproduces itself because it seems to me that many people don't have a clue about the history of this country and they inhabit a world, some by choice, some by necessity, which strips them and distances them from historical knowledge, from acquiring historical knowledge. And it seems to me that acquiring a historical understanding of this country is fundamental for us now, because we don't want to be deluded, we don't want to be drunk on the past, um, and we want to have a real history that will help us make good choices about the future. Are you talking about colonialism and imperialism then, Professor? Well, yes, I am, because, you know, the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, what, enormous millions and millions of... 85% of the planet was under colonial domination at the beginning of the 20th century. And a lot of the things that you will be encountering in your course and which I teach my students in my course 
and and perhaps some some of the listeners too, people won't have thought about what that might mean for them in our situation. When the, ho- the whole world was dominated by colonial empires, colonial structures, getting rid of those structures is part of making the democracy that you're talking about. You know, we've, we, we've been made to think a lot in the last months, I suppose, about the EU and what the EU means for us. The EU is part of the undoing of the colonial empires that were there in the world. And that's why making that... That's why you can go to the Caribbean, go to Martinique and spend euros there or go to bits of Spain which are actually still part of Africa. So so the, the making of the EU is part of the political and economic solution that European powers came to when they realised their empires were, were gone and we were in a new era of global politics. Um, the, the countries we used to call them third world countries... Um, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, we're, we're going to be independent in the future and new political structures had to be created. In order to continue to dominate those countries? Well, yes, in order to continue to dominate and exploit those countries, to extract from them the things that are precious, that with everybody's got a mobile phone, that mobile phone on the table here between us, it's got a bit of the Congo inside, it makes it work. What so, do you mean? Copper or silicon? Tantalum, or... gold, these things are coming out of an extractive... Um, an, an extractive process that means that we are, All right, so we're mod- locked into a relationship with those places. So modern consumerism and my personal relationship with it as an iPhone user does involve post-colonial relationships. And would you say or, or a different form of well, colonial we relationships? post-colonial and neo-colonial. We can, neo. we can have both. Neo. Slash neo so I'm participating to. in colonialism because what you were saying, that the conditions under which these uh, minerals were mined in the Congo probably weren't that favourable to the people mining no, them. No, there's, there's war there. And the, one of the issues in the war there, you can talk to people so as who know more about it than I do, one of the things about the war there is that the war is in part, the, the minerals that make those consumer goods work are implicated in that state of war. And it's also the case that the phone that comes out of that is implicated in how, I don't know, how you keep women safe from the violence of that war afterwards. So it's a strange thing in a way, in a way because, first of all, the phone creates the... Or is part of how the problem is created, and then the phone emerges as part of the solution. It's very interesting problems. how a phone is marketed on the basis of communication, openness and accessibility, but is in reality founded on ignorance and exploitation in a manner that you wouldn't necessarily recognise unless someone tells you. That's true, but then the history of consumer culture... You know, what else is on? Oh, there's no, there's some fruit here. If there'd been a fizzy drink, I'd have said... just well, analyse things that are only on the table, Paul. <laughs> We've got to go on a longer journey than that. It's true. on the table with Professor Paul Gilroy where he analyses stuff that's in his peripheral vision and points out how it's the result of neo-colonialism. Well, what about sugar then? Because right. in the 18th century... People, sugar became a commodity that everyone was addicted to. Yeah, I love it. And it was fatal to the people that produced it and fatal to the people who consumed it. And at least then there were people who were against slavery who said, I don't want slave sugar. You have blood in your sugar. I don't want that slave sugar on my table. So, and a lot of those people were women. A lot of those people were... Who were they, those movements? Abolitionists. They were the abolitionists, the people who were against slavery. At a certain point, they said, you know what? There are things we've got to give up. If we're going to defeat this system, one of those things is sugar that comes from slavery. These early abolitionists, these uh, early activists, they recognised that that change involved sacrifice. So some people were just like, oh, this sugar's bloody delicious. Who cares? Don't ask no questions. And then some people went, the cost of this sugar is one thing. It's it's not doing us a great deal of good as the consumers. But also there's blood in it because the process of farming the sugar is killing people. people. Yeah, that's right. Oh, them actors. So, okay, so that was the beginning of that... 
So that was the beginning of that conversation. We got that. I mean, there are obviously that each of these commodities tell you can tell a story about empire from from all of them, from cotton, from sugar, tea. Obviously, tea. Mm. Um, you know, you put the sugar in the tea, and then you can go and work, and you can do new kinds of work because you've got empty calories from the sugar that help you be an industrial worker, help you work in that mill, help help you do that thing. So, so there's a complicated story about how these commodities fit into that larger colonial economy, larger colonial. Structure. Yeah, whether it's commodities that were are easier, easily identifiable as sort of, you know, although they continue to exist, they're identifiable as historic. Like we all yeah. recognise that sugar and cotton, these are sort of the icons of the dark old days of the colonies. But you're saying now that these the same mentality is somewhat masked. It's masked, is it through like a, a, an economic ideology that's not so explicit and obvious as the, the colonial sovereign state narrative? Is that right? Yeah, I would say that that's... Although I suppose in the 18th century and the 19th century, people used to talk about slaves and then they'd talk about wage slaves. They didn't see a discontinuity between the experience of people exploited as slaves and people exp- being exploited as wage slaves. Hey, there was a connection there. May I ask, please, Professor Paul Gilroy, that, uh, like, that we, uh, white English people, white British people, we think, oh, no, come on, we give up slavery ages before America. We're brilliant. Like, that's, isn't that part of our sort of national identity Greatness. and our national narrative? Yeah, that we, yeah. And even when we did do some colonisation mm. in India, it was ever so good. They got some lovely trains out of it. Mm. And, uh, like, you know, uh, don't you yeah, think we sort time. of... Hmm? They ran on time. They ran on time. Is there anyone else that made trains run on time at a human cost? I can't think of anyone. Um, so, like, so like, uh, like when you you started this by saying that we need to have be have an awareness of our colonial history, yeah. part of, you know, Britain does regard its or her history mm. as sort of being great. As... Yeah, that's true. And I mean, you know, I, I like George Orwell. A lot of people have problems with him. I like him. And one of the things I like like him for is because he said the English working class lives in India. You know, that's where it is. So wow. even the people that thought of themselves as, as working class in this country were, you know, unwi- I'm not saying their lives were easy or straightforward or right or was free of suffering or free of exploitation. Of course they weren't. But they were they were almost entering at a, a level that was premised on the exploitation of others who were invisible to them. Yeah, and I suppose if they are invisible to you, how they're not part of your consciousness and how are you going to incorporate that in your understanding of the world? Now, may I ask, your background is Guyanese and, my, and my, you grew up in East Guyanese. My mum my mum, my was Guyanese. Uh, she came here in the 50s. Um, you know, she'd been a teacher in Guyana. She couldn't be a teacher here. Mm. She she was a maid. She was Because of the racism. Things. Well, yeah, I think, yes, actually, to be, to be <laughs> fair, because of the racism. The old um, racism prevents that. And my, my father was English. He, you know, grew up. He grew up in um, in uh, what would you call it, Euston, Summers Town. That's oh wow! Where my father comes from. Yeah, that's so, grim. Yeah, well, it, it was it was grim. I think it's not very nice it's now. It's not very nice now. Maybe Bits she, of it. Yeah. Anyway, so they, you know, they um, found no, each other in the fifties, and uh, and the result was me and my sister. So. so when you grew up, how have you gone from uh, like? Did you grow up whereabouts? Did you grow up Summers Town or East London? No, no, no. I, I grew up. I grew up in North London. I was born in East London. I'm, I'm very proud to have been born within the sound of Bow Bells, but actually they moved out of there, and uh, I grew up around North London. So part... my mum became a teacher. You see, that's the explanation of me. If that's what you're looking for, yeah, that's what I want. Right, okay. Define yourself. To tell says... me exactly what's going on. That's what I'm nosing around for. How do you? know this stuff come on <laughs> my mum was a teacher and like many people who migrated at that time 
um, you know, they had a very strong investment in the idea of an education. They saw an education as a valuable thing because my mum didn't have capital. They didn't have those other things that you might have had, but they had the chance of an education. My mum was very fierce, I think, as a teacher, where she was allowed to become a primary school teacher, became a headmistress and a writer and all that. And she was fierce with the kids in the class and she was, she was fierce with us too. She told us that our education was our one chance. Do you feel that you've been endowed with this fierceness, that it's something of a legacy? And was she right about mm. what education would give you? I think she was right about education. I know people don't see it like that now. They look at education as something that gives you, um, you know, credentials that enable you to accomplish things. But, you know, an older version of, of, of an education would be about being curious and allowing your curiosity to lead you as far as it, you can go in any direction. And I think, I suppose I, I was grateful for that, for, the, for having encouragement to be a curious kid. And my mum, my mum, bless her, she didn't make me go to school. She Why? said, she said, kids have too much school. Uh, if you want to learn, you want to stay home and read, go to the library and read. You can do that. You do not have to go to school. She's giving you some mixed messages there, your mum, if I may say, because she's saying we've got to focus on education. <laughs> but Don't for, go to school, though. Well, maybe there's more, than, there's more to education than school. Mm. And maybe I think she was very protective of what would happen to me in a school where there was only two other black kids or whatever, you know. And actually, what? That, that, was, that was right. She protected me. What she, did happen? My what, was it, what was it like? Well, you know what? You know what? You know. When was it? This is this is. I'm talking about the. Uh, I'm born '56. I'm really talking about the '60s. You know, and it was it was hard. It was hard. It's hard going to and from school. It's hard. It was very hard after Enoch Powell made his big speech in '68. You know. Oh, that has an bit, impact, does it? That it rhetoric does, yeah, down the street. You're not safe. You're not safe. You know. How, you have to run for your life. So, how, like some people may not know. Like, so when Enoch Powell, who's like a great a hero god. He's a of, god of, um, of British political culture, a lot yeah. of people like him, Nigel Farage, and. Uh, like, the thing is, I've noticed with a lot of people that are that way inclined politically, they, they can give a good speech, you know? Oh, yeah, he loved the language. Yeah. And we love the language too, don't we? We love, love it because, it. because it's, it's something... I was going to say the other thing my mum gave me was a love of, Eng, of the English language. Mm. And that is something that I wish people cared more about. You know, I find myself getting very conservative about, about how that language... Because the language has to live at the same time the ignorance that people have. Because, you know, it's there before you're, you're born, it's there after you're dead. So it's got its own life independent of your use of it. But it's something that you are, you, you're supposed to be like a custodian of it while, while it's within your mouth. I'm interested between the relationships between language and power. When mm. you think of an orator like uh, Enoch Powell or, or, or a populist, an accessible political figure like Nigel Farage, um, who sort of in, in, in a bland and bleak political landscape, even the sort of rough edges of, of uh, dog-end charisma and mm. beery affability seem like mm. a kind of a sort of nuanced uh, sort of pleasantness. Um, like, but uh, you said a minute ago that when like Enoch Powell did that famous Rivers of Blood speech where he's saying the mm. black man will have the whip hand over the white man. Mm. Like, you know, we've got to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves on the old race front. Yeah. That had an actual impact for you as a, a, a black as a English kid person. walking around in London. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... How do you mean? Like, you felt people feel licensed? Yes, I think. And, you know, people were... I know that they didn't collect the statistics because the offences didn't exist and things like that. Oh, well, you know, there was no I, hate crime. Because there wasn't monitoring, there was no hate crime in the law or anything like that. So, you know, when I'm walking home for, for lunch from, my, from school or whatever and I get roughed up by these kids who see me coming down the street, 
And I mean, these are routine aspects of city life. But I feel that like what happened in the summer, you know, there's a sense that the the boundaries of what it's permissible to say and, and what is permissible to show about your feelings that you might normally keep politely out of vision, you know, that that boundary moved during that time. I see. We moved towards what became permissible as what might be called open racism, that people feel that there was mm. certain kind of language became legitimised, certain kind of opinions and fears became legitimised, would you say? Oh, yes, I think that's true. Although if I was to start rehearsing them now, you wouldn't recognise it as a racism that was sayable today. For example... You know, people used to say to me constantly that my family ate kitty cat rather than normal food at home. That was a thing that people said about us, that we, we, we didn't eat real food, we ate cat food and dog food. Uh. Well, you know, obviously I'm, my parents are vegetarians, so I wasn't, I wasn't eating any meat at all. Uh. But, but the, point, the point is that, the, if you like, the repertoire of, of, of racial imagery in the mid-60s was very different to the one that we encounter. Well, there's almost a, a sort of a quaintness, a tweeness to that kind well, of racism, well, yeah, but there absolutely. are, but it's a recognizable trope in when you sort of consider some of the discourse in popular newspapers around halal food and the way yes, that uh, yes. Muslims are like, oh, like, oh halal, they, they're animals, they kill well, their food in a true, weird way. At the same time, you know, I remember there was a case a few years ago of some man who kept attacking, kept attacking people of Asian heritage. And he would go into uh, curry restaurants, you know, and he would attack the staff. And the judge, one of the things that the judge, I don't remember the date, but I've got a cutting somewhere. The judge said to him, well, I'm afraid I'm going to put you under an order which forbids you from going into said establishment. And he said, well, where am I going to eat? Where am I going to eat from? <laughs> so, <laughs> he should have thought about that before he was so racist. So oh, think, come on, mate, I love a curry. Exactly. <laughs> All right, fair so, enough, but so just don't do the racist stuff. All right. So we're dealing with a situation where people can hate the person that produces the thing they are addicted to or are engaged with. And that's, that's true, I think, of, of black culture, of minority cultures in general. Very often they have a sort of fascinating power. Look at the, the culture around music or other things like that. People can love the music but not always like the people that produce the music. They don't necessarily want their company. In your they don't book, necessarily want After to Empire... Sorry to interrupt you, I got excited. Uh, Like in your book After Empire, because it was a reference count, I thought, hang on a minute, I'm going to sound clever here. So uh, I got got overwhelmed. In your book After Empire, you talk about uh, unruly multiculturalism. What do you mean by that, please? Well, I don't know if you've had this experience of getting on the bus and... Probably you don't go on many buses. Not for a while, I go, I, I, Oh, my <laughs> God, what the hell? Who are these other people in my car? <laughs> Lovely, it's very spacious. Who's everyone else? <laughs> well, I go on the bus, right. and I'm a proud user of public transport because I, I like public things, you know, I like things that are public. Not things, I think public things need to be valued more highly than they are. Anyway, mm. so you asked mm. me about unruly multiculture. Well, I've had this experience in the past and, you know, and recently too, of getting on the bus and hearing people talk behind me and I don't know, I can't put them in a category on the basis of the language they're using because they're, they're, they're speaking to each other in a way that draws on linguistic elements from, from Caribbean speech, probably from Bengali, from all different mm. kinds of words and rhythms and patterns of intonation that they, that they are. There's a kind of poetics there, there's a kind of rhetoric, rhetorical style there, and I can't tell. I know if they're probably, you know, if they're male or female, but I don't know if they're black, white, brown, whatever they are. I don't know what they are. And that, for me, I like that aspect of it. I like that. But unruly, Can you tell what class they are? Yeah, um, no, actually. Really? No. I mean, not if they're speaking that language, no. Mm. Because it seems to me that actually what we, what we used to think of as a, a working class life has been, has been transformed by that unruly multiculturalism. How? I, I, I tell you, well, 
for example, I was I went to the post office. You probably don't do that very often. Yeah, stop bringing up all went, these references. <laughs> I was down a coal mine the other day. <laughs> this working class war you're waging on no, me. I, I went to I went to the post office to pick up a parcel, and there was a queue. There's always a queue, and the woman there's a woman behind me in the queue, and she says, she start we talk, you know how you do, and she's an older white woman, and she says, you're with us now, she says, and she goes on about how. The blacks are all right because, you know, we've all been together for a long time in where we live, but it's the Muslims now who are a problem. And it's all spun around a story of her grandson being victimised by Muslim boys in his school and she feels protective of her grandson. And she, in the way that she articulates her desire to keep him safe, she, she starts to make it very, very clear to me that the term Muslim has become a kind of racial category in her mind. And I think that's a general problem. I think that... Muslim is what we, you know, in the English department, we call a racial trope, a way of speaking about a racial idea without invoking it directly. So Muslim has been racialized in that way. I suppose we could look back at previous times in the 20th century when the word Jew might have been racialized in that way. And people say, oh, it's just a religion. But actually, they don't mean that it's just a religion at all. It means that there's a whole cultural complex there and maybe even a, a biological one that needs to be recognized. So what the, the significance of this remark from the woman in the post office, yeah. it sort of indicates that there's shifting inclusivity. Yeah. And like now it's okay for people of Afro-Caribbean yeah. background to be included with us in inverted commas, which in her case, presumably she's, you know, given that she's queuing up in a post office, we're going to give her the benefit of being white we'll working do. class. Yeah, we will do, yeah. So like, but but now that shift of otherness, of the condemned other... yeah. It, it, the boundaries know, moved. Yeah. To, to the, how do you think, what is the responsibility of people that are interested in racial politics, of people that are interested in change, of people that are interested in quality to not allow these kind of definitions to be asserted? And how mm. do we mm. prevent the um, our relationship between people, like that woman, it's like you were yeah. careful to say, oh, a kid grandson was being bullied. So like, how do we compassionately and empathetically encourage mm. people to look at these kind of issues in a different way, to look at these terms in a different way and find new forms of solidarity? Well, that's it. You've, you've answered your question. We, we do it, we try to encourage them. And that's going to depend a lot, really, on almost like the microclimate of where you are. It means you can't reach for some generic recipe for anti-racism off a bookshelf. Oh, there's not You're generic, not taking, that would no, be a bit racist yeah, in itself. I mean, all, and in fact, what happens now with a computer and so on is that people think that they can take some script from out of an American life, out of an American experience, and just sort of apply it locally, and then that's enough. Well, that isn't enough, actually. Because these uh, experiences are quite distinct and different. They of race are. race they in America different. is not race in England. No, I think, you know, African-Americans are, what, 13 14% of the population. They're majority in huge areas of the country. They're Americans, you know. Mm. I mean, I know, I'm sure that, um, that some, you know, affiliates of the current regime will want to send them back to where they came from. But that's always been the thing that's been said to us all, all my life, I think, and I'm, what, 61 now. All my life I've been told to go back to my own country. And I think that is the, that is the, the, the enduring, the resilient motto of that racism and nationalism in this country is go back somewhere else. Well, I have never had anywhere else to go. That's really good. Uh, that, so the, the enduring motto is go back to where you came from. Now, in your book Black Atlantic, don't you talk about the idea of how there is no sort of state origin, there is no Zion there is no place of origin, but rather the sea should be the liminal space that is the common experience for all diasporatic people. 
Well, no. Best question I thought you, ever was, asked. you were going to translate, you said. Now, let, <laughs> let me translate for you. Thanks. I mean, I think. A lot of people won't understand me. I have to get a professor in because a lot of my ideas are too clever. I, I was interested in the idea of culture. I come from a kind of academic background where people focus on questions of culture. And the word culture, you know, it's, I suppose, it, it, it's connected in the English language to agriculture, horticulture. It's connected to soil. It's connected to Ooh. ground. It's connected to the earth under our feet, the clay under our feet. And I wanted to say that my, the experience of these black Atlantic populations was one where a relationship to the land didn't play that kind of role as the, the ground of identity. I didn't want to... Uh, endorse that because I know that you know when you got in a when our ancestors were shoved on the point of a sword into a at the hold of a slave ship the culture that they had been formed by didn't just stop and then travel across the sea and resume on the other side when they hit another bit of land once they're in that liquid environment that maritime environment things are going on immediately and something new is being born there it's not just what you inherit culturally, you work on it, you change it, you transform it, and it becomes something else. So I wanted to find a way of thinking about culture that wasn't so easy to tie to the fixity of a grounded identity. I wanted to put some liquid into it and use its, the liquid character of that culture to, to give everybody a richer understanding of what culture could be. Oh, that's brilliant. Because what? Because the metaphor or the reality of the soil was redundant and irrelevant because the soil is the very thing that uh, that your ancestors have been taken from and displaced from. So it needs to be a different symbol, a different a image. A different way of thinking about culture. I mean, obviously, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying the land doesn't matter. I'm just saying that for, for us, if we're doing intellectual work, we're doing um, intellectual work, how we think about culture is really important. And to make it too solid means mm. we're going to miss a lot. You know, we're going to miss a whole lot. We're going to miss how, for example, you can be connected culturally to lots of places, not mm. just one, not just the bit under your feet. So doesn't that challenge the way that we think about the state? And you said this recurring motif, go back to where you came from. Do you think that sort of if there's the initial wave of ignorance of, mm. the, you know, that we associate with that kind of rhetoric, but second to that, is like we don't even like you know I'm putting myself in the position of the racist person yeah. saying that I don't know why really because I've never said that but like uh, like we don't know where we came from because we don't know our colonial history even enough to know that there are complex reasons why there are people from yeah. different ethnicities occupying a formerly Celtic Anglo-Saxon mm. island but what I'm curious about Paul is don't you think that the beneficiaries of identity beyond soil beyond state would include a lot of dispossessed white in inverted commas people like work like that if you know if we if we continue to say like oh well, I'm English send them yeah. back home yeah. like or like we don't you know like there's not enough jobs let's look yeah. after the people there yeah. already yeah. that a more liquid form of identity that went beyond state identity I mean yeah. who are the beneficiaries of state identity who are the beneficiaries of you know make America great again or mm. England for the again. English mm. who's benefiting from that it's because I don't see really how it is what you know ordinary or the majority of mm. working class mm. lower middle class or middle class people I don't see how they are the beneficiaries of that kind of thinking because what is their relationship to the state what is their relationship to their own narrative mm. how are they economically benefiting mm. culturally benefiting mm. 
from that form of identity. So isn't there something in this idea of liquid identity that offers us a different kind of solidarity and a different kind of narrative that goes beyond racial politics mm. and into a sort of a, a new way of thinking about who we are as a people? Well, one would hope that that was true. One would definitely hope that's true. I mean, I don't know. I think these unruly multiculturalism is alive and at large. You know, if you go to the if you go to the hospital, I sometimes have to go to the hospital to get a blood test. The people who are taking the so blood do out, I. So do people... I. I was in the hospital for a blood test. <laughs> no, well, I'm just saying, people who take the blood out of your arm are likely to be those people. The people who are, who are sitting next to you. Well, you probably don't have that, but in the rest Help. of us, <laughs> people who are sitting next to you are also those people. And you know, I think. Just to, re- to remind everybody how intermeshed everything is, it's really important. And, you know, of course there's racism in London, of course there's racism in this country, but a lot of the time, um, a lot of the time the people who are in those sorts of conflicts have also been to the same school, sat next to each other, been um, in the same court, been in the same prison cell or whatever. And as that happens, they develop a certain skill and that doesn't mean they can always undo the interpersonal effect of all of this, this, this system. But most of the time, they can sort of muddle along and get by and deal with it as it appears and say, no, you can't say that, or no, actually, that's wrong, you know? So when you say, who are the beneficiaries of this Little England thing, Mm. I think they're the people who've politicised it and tied it to a very narrow view of what the future of this country's going to be. And and they're they're nationalists, is what they are. They're they're nationalists. They're they're not even British nationalists, because we don't know what a British... Nationalism will be there's Scots, there's Welsh, there's Irish, there's Scouse, there's, you know, right. Mackhams and all these things that happen in the in the north. So it's a kind of English, it's a, like a very narrow idea of English nationalism. I think it's, don't you think that it's a kind of a mobile notion to which we can affix it as a kind of placebo for, uh, for uh, identity and as a placeholder while people that have power are able to continue to practice power. Because, like, what I don't see, like, you know, like, often, and as a result, perhaps, of my previous conversation with Brad Evans, I think, whose imperatives are we living by? You know, you're talking about the colonial history of Britain. Like, like that it Really, it was a, it's an economic history, a history mm. of plunder and, and yeah. extra, and yeah, history of trade. Mm. So, like... Who are the people that are benefiting now? I don't sort of see that there's like people at like transnational corporations getting all misty eyed at a royal wedding. You know, like their, their interest is economic, mm. their interest mm. is resource led. Mm. Mm. So, aren't these forms of identity that we're engaging with, mm. this kind of like, you know, particularly in relation to nation and possibly in relation to race, although I mean, less, obviously less qualified than you, but less qualified than probably anyone who's not white in a white country, like, aren't these bogus ideas aren't these bogus forms of identity you know what i'm resisting a little bit because i don't think ideas are bogus i think that's the the problem is that we can't divide ideas up into bogus ideas and authentic ideas the problem is that the most um you know the most bogus ideas are still real when they've got you in their grip um and and so it's for me it's not helpful we need to do better in order to sort the ideas we like from the ideas that we don't like and we're frightened by um, we need to do better than a distinction between these are real and these are fake. 
Do you see what I mean? I do see what you mean, because if you're feeling something, then it's real to you. I appreciate that. But how do we get beyond it to real change? How do we get mm. beyond it to a point where the, where it affects power, where I mean mm. where it gives people access to power in their own lives? When you said that thing about people muddling along, they're in the same prison cells, using the same buses, it's sort of like that people see the... What is the... You know, often, like... Um, Radical thinking can be regarded, particularly sort of post sixties, as a little bit sort of woo woo, airy fairy, you know. But actually, it's a deeply pragmatic thing because well, the thing that interests me is how can people get along better? How can we tell ourselves a story about ourselves that works? I mean, if culture, as you said, like you know, our particular our British ideas of culture are rooted in the soil. They're rooted in religions that are derived from agriculture, plant worshiping cultures. The Messiah rose again from the soil. Like, what? How do we? start to have a culture that relates to our experience as human beings now. Like, rather than, mm. like, you know, of course, if, if that, that woman in the post office, she's not engaging in sort of empty rhetoric. She's saying, I'm pissed off, my grandson, yeah, Muslims, yeah, I've seen yeah. on the news, Muslims, we've yeah, all seen right. them towers go up, Muslims. Yeah. So, like, you know, she, it, what she's saying in that queue is valid and justifiable. But what we, you know, and, and we can't go, oh, that's a bogus idea and just dismiss it with a yeah. wave of a hanky. But yeah. how do we say, here's a different way of thinking about what's going on at that school? Yeah. Well, I think that's a good question because what it does is it points you to the, the institution that you're in and it says, well, if you're in that school, then you're going to have to address that question because actually you can show to that woman that the school doesn't work that way that she thinks that it does, actually, and that school won't allow her grandson to be bullied and that his fear, if, he, if it is his fear, has to be addressed by the way the school works from day to day. I'm sorry if that sounds, if that sounds you know... Um, airy fairy, but actually, it's pra- it's a practical question of how you change that school. It sounds regulatory. Um, it sounds a- like that you do need that the institutions need to have an understanding of what the impact are on the people well, that are yes. using that I institution. Mean, I, I work in a you know I work in a university. Well, obviously, what how you answer your question depends on what future you have for the university and what you think a university's for and how it's going to work and what, what you think people should study when they get there and who's going to teach them and all of that sort of thing. So I think that, that you know, people have raised this with movements about, you know, who's teaching us, what's our curriculum, uh, why are there so, why are there, you know, a trifling number of black academics or professors in this country? Why is there a statue of Cecil Rhodes here or a statue of, you know, Galton there? Whatever, these are, these are people from the past who've been not just um, implicated in the colonial story, they've been the, the icons of that dynamic colonial story and they're still there and they're still shaping how those institutions think of themselves well maybe it would be a good idea for those institutions to reflect on that history and see if they want to to uh, just assume it as something they take for granted or make it into a problem that the people who are in there can share and fix and change oh really so like you mentioned like roads so you're referring to that roads must fall there's, isn't there well, there's a statue of roads somewhere in in oxford i believe yeah. right so you and like the students said we don't want him up he's a big imperial well, colonial do, brute some, yeah. some people go no come on they gave us loads of money get with it it's a yeah, nice statue there you go i mean so what you're saying that that discourse should become more open and the university should go oh we're not really sure actually it's a bit complicated is that what you're asking well, sort of open dialogue and it isn't just about university i mean last week i was in bristol i was giving a talk in bristol and you know edward colston one of the great um, you know organizers of the transatlantic slave trade you know is is someone who's a you know major figure in the life of bristol there's a the colston hall you, you may have even oh, yeah. Been there. yeah well colston people down there are saying do we want to change the name of this building 
But are we happy that there's a slave trader's name? He organised it. Yeah. I only organised it. <laughs> that's, that's a terrible role to have played. Yeah, well, I didn't and, know you that. know, there's an, there's an artist called Hugh Locke who, um, who took the, the statue of Colston, which is there in the square in Bristol, and he draped it in interesting kind of meretricious African de- decorations and changed the statue. So I suppose I feel myself that either saying, yes, it's got to oh, be Colston, good. and saying, no, let's get rid of it and change or change it, sweep it away. I'm not happy with either of those things. I, I, I would favour a way of saying, well, we've got this legacy, we've got this heritage, it arouses in us feelings of, of guilt. Let's change those feelings of guilt, if we're lucky, into something like shame, and we'll make the conversation about how we're going to live differently into something that's part of the public culture of our city or our university or or, or our hospital or whatever whatever it is. Oh, know. I like that. That's that. So, so that's the unruly multiculturalism yes. in action. It's sort of saying like, right, we've got this lineage and narrative. What are we going to do? With but it? let's create one together that's bonded. And you're saying that that's a beautiful symbol of that was decorated in African yeah, paraphernalia. By Hulock, the artist. Well, and I think those things are spontaneously happening a lot of the time in this country anyway. Yeah. Because not everybody hates the music and uh, loves the music and hates the people who create it. There are a lot of people that you know. If you look at the transformation of popular culture in this country. You know, black cultures have been greatly valued in that space to the point where they're again somewhat taken for granted as the as the source, as the engine for so much of that play, so much of that joy. Yeah. Do, do do you think that that maybe relates to a, quite an esoteric idea around sort of otherness as the repository for both uh, the mystic experience, mm. as in music, but mm. also the sort of animal experience, sexuality, violence? Do you think that mm. that's unconsciously how uh, the the dominant culture has narrativized the black experience as like oh this symbolizes mm. kind of our mystic- the regression of of white people into a kind of animalistic uh, primitive even state though we, even though there's still the acknowledgement that it's not entirely regressive mm. because access to sort of the mystery yeah, to exactly. art to animus is a component of that judgment or that diagnosis i'm sure that that's going on for some people but i'm i'm not i mean now i'm sounding too optimistic maybe now i don't know i don't feel that that's the the dominant script you know i mean if you think back to the um aftermath of the riots of 2011 yeah there was that historian went on the television david starkey yeah and he said the problem with this country is that the white people have become black he did. Right? He wouldn't have liked to have been fit? on that bus where you said he you can't tell who's, what, who's no, talking wouldn't. in the background. He'd have hated that. That's yeah, his worst would. nightmare. Is, he yeah. wants to know exactly what colour people are from at least 20 yards away, no matter what direction he's facing. Yeah, and, and to be able to put them in a nice little hierarchy yes. so some of their lives are more valuable than, than others, you know, because it doesn't really matter what happens to these people because they're not really as human as they others who are higher up the rungs, on higher rungs of that ladder. You know? That's the thing I learned last week, necropolitics, who it's oh. all right to kill. Yes, who 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 can be killed with impunity? And that's like, and then what that lady in the post office was referring to is like a while ago, it was okay for Afro Caribbean people to be nominated in that category. Now that you're all right, come with us. And now it's Muslim. People. Yeah, I think I think that if we look at who gets, who can be killed by the prison service with impunity, who can be killed by the police with impunity, you know, whose whose relatives are fighting the coroner for a, for more than an open verdict or whatever. I mean. 
we're going to see that there is a disproportionate number of people of colour in that queue. You know, I live, where I live in Finsbury Park, there's an organisation called Inquest. Works very hard with the relatives of people who have died following the, the contact with the police or or other resources of violence that belong to, to the state. And and there's much of that work to do, but we know that this isn't just about racism, actually, at that oh. point. It's also about it's also about the routine machinery of, of a society which is still, although it's hard to talk about class, is still in a class configuration. It's it, still I, a this, class hierarchy. Yes, I wonder about the sort of the affiliations between working class move, the necessary affiliations and indeed blending of working class movements and racially oriented civil rights movements. And I wanted to ask you, Paul, about uh, the emergence of Black Lives Matter in the last mm. sort of eight years under the presidency of Obama mm. and how that will be affected under tr- Trump and, and what what do you think is the direction of the civil rights movement in the United States? Because one of your jobs was you used to be the professor of African-American studies at Yale, did you? I did, yes. I was the chairman, chair of that department for a few years. I, I That's don't the, know. one of the best ones, eh? Well, Yale, yeah, Harvard. Yeah, well, it's in trading places. I mean, it's also it's one of the richest universities in the world. Oh. And it is in one of the poorest cities in America. So what's that like there? Do you feel a bit odd? Well, yes, you do feel a bit odd because, you know, and the weather's very extreme. But this is a this is a familiar picture from American urban life because it's a very segregated environment and New Haven is, you know, pretty much a black city. At one, at one time, if you were a new student at Yale, you used to get a map that came with your, you know, orientation material, which said, don't go around this corner after, you know, this time of night, or whatever, because you, you'd be vulnerable in a... And I'm sure that's true in Chicago, where the university sits right there in the south side of Chicago. And it's true in Pennsylvania, where, although and I know the people that run the University of Pennsylvania, another Ivy League place, have worked very hard. There is also a case that the, the ghetto is grinding against the walls of the, these institutions. I mean, at Yale, you know, the, um, a lot of the f- famous Black Panthers who had organised the Panther Party in that city, their mums all worked in the library of Yale University because there were no other jobs. That's where they, once the Winchester Rifle Factory had been shut down, uh, it was working for Yale or working in Yale's hospital. That, that's what employment was in, in that city. So you're already grinding up against black misery, black poverty, black suffering in that university environment and you can't sort of pretend that you're on some island that floats above the ground. How do you mitigate that being in like a, 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 a somewhat... Either if not privileged, privileged yeah. isolated position. How do you? Because like ultimately, the mm. relevance of the work you mm. do is surely the mm. impact it has on people's lives, the impact it has on culture itself, and its uh, value mm. in instigating and facilitating change and the advancement mm. of the conversation. How do you feel when you're at Yale in a really brilliant, prestigious job that completely validates your mother's fierceness and enthusiasm? Mm. But then, as you say, there's the ghetto mm. is grinding up against the university walls. How does that? What's that feel like? Well, it feels like I don't work there anymore. Oh, <laughs> you knocked it on the head. Yeah, it came so back it felt here. Too, what? Because it felt like, oh, this what this does is it just is a, it's a nod to the problem while perpetuating it. Well, in a, in short, that's the short version. Yes, I I okay. didn't. I mean, that's always going to be a problem. Actually, if you're in education, and education becomes a mach, part of a machine of making privilege reproduce itself over time. And, oh, bloody hell, and those universities, yeah. those universities are sort of country clubs for the American ruling class. That's what they are, really. Ah, they As, look alongside like that. Even educational... the word Ivy League sounds a bit sounds like, like that, that, doesn't yeah. it? And then, yeah, then big sport events they have and stuff. Bula Bula, yeah, that's they're right. They're country clubs, that's what mm. they are. 
I see, I see. Hey, I was watching that O.J. Simpson thing. I'm really... Have you seen it? No, no, I Why? You can't remember it's too bloody just... low-cultural for you, is it? <laughs> no, it's too not. Too popular, is it? Uh, listen, you don't... I, no, I just couldn't make myself, because having watched the trial at the time, we were living in the States at that time. Oh, uh, yeah, and I just you? Yes, and you I just thought... on O.J. I just OD'd on O.J., that's right. Well, this, this documentary is brilliant, right? Because what the, the, even the, the first part where it identified OJ as a, an African-American figure, how he came to prominence and fame at USC, right. became a, an icon and a darling yeah. of, the, of uh, the American nation even. Yeah. like showed Bob Hope making jokes about him while yeah. he was still at school. It's, oh, welcome, it's OJ, all excited and stuff, yeah. right? And then... This was the bit of analysis that I most enjoyed. It said, like, that, you know, at that time, there was, I can't remember their names, but them uh, Olympian athletes that did the Black Power salute, no, yeah, yeah, course, right? Yeah. And, of course, there was Muhammad Ali yeah. was making, a, like, a powerful stand. And at that point, OJ went, listen, I don't get involved in that stuff. I love mm. playing football. Mm. And I sort of felt like, yeah, that's legit, because if he was a, like, white person, you wouldn't go, pick up the mantle of poor people or do something for the disabled. Like, you know what I mean? He's like, yeah, mm. fair enough. Be a, just be an athlete if that's your mm. deal. But subsequently, it seemed that, that what OJ became is an exemplifier of the American dream in the fact that his own ethnicity was yeah. extracted for the convenience of the white community so he could become a sort of a commodified product, yeah. most notably in those yeah. Hertz adverts where OJ Simpson just became, he, it's the black man, it's okay to like OJ Simpson. Mm. In, in short, validating the continuing mm. prejudice against other African-American people and that the tr trial and the circumstances under which it took place after the beating of, of Rodney King was that like this sort of seismic and incendiary and unbelievable explosion of ideas that had been simmering or a story that hadn't been quite as articulately told up until that point. And, mm. like, it's only sort of subsequently with, like, a decade to look back on it that you can say, oh, that's why oh, that on. trial was so mm -hmm. important, defining mm. and dividing. Do you think that what we are seeing now with this, like, you know, let's, you know, like, I know you don't like to use the word Brexit because I suppose it's playing into the hands of the victors and the victors choose the language and the victors choose the story. But say, mm. like, you know, with what's happening in our country and our relationship to the EU... And what's happening with the rise mm. of Trump? Is this what? Because one thing I reckon is that grotesque stuff mm. is just the exaggeration of things that are already there. The Black Lives Matter movement started while Barack Obama was president, yeah. who seems like some kind of Jesus, particularly in retrospect. But still, what was the actual effect that it had on the lives of ordinary working people, regardless mm. of their colour? But you know, mm. specifically, seeing mm. as how it's going on, black people. What does this mean now? This new narrative. What is this twist? With your decades of experience in academic academia, writing about it, what trends? What things can you identify? Is there some Thing happening? Is there a transnational identity? Is there a possibility for a transnational movement that is more positive? There's a question. <laughs> yeah, there is a question, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Oh, bloody hell, it's mate! Ridiculous. Make an effort. It's a <laughs> Took me ten minutes suppose, to say it. <laughs> I think that this country has never been more enthralled to American culture, American ideas, American language, American fantasy than it is right now. And that is a disturbing development. And here I am holding hands with the ghost of Enoch Powell, who was somebody who, I suppose, hated America almost uh, more than any, any, anything else. You know, he really, really Why? didn't like... Because he felt that it was destroying England. It was destroying that little England that, that we have been talking about. Now, you know, I don't want to sound like, like him, but I, I'm terrified of the dominance of American culture language, uh, mentalities. And I think it's, 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 it's not, I suppose, when it's mediated through the computer, 
you know. And we've just learnt all this stuff about people being in bubbles and never being exposed to anyone that they disagree with and always being uh, having their beliefs they already hold being reinforced by the digital environment that they inhabit. I, I think you put those things together and that's that's actually part of what's been going on, even though we don't yet know the full story about whether the data companies have actually found ways of using your clicks and likes on Facebook to feed you a certain line because they've worked out that you are the person who's vulnerable to a certain pitch, a certain image, a certain feeling that they can give you electronically. So I think we've got to work out how to deal with that environment. That's the first thing. And the second thing is we started off, didn't we, talking about ignorance? I think we've got to develop new ways of thinking about ignorance and see that ignorance isn't just something that happens. Ignorance is made. Ignorance is manufactured. Ignorance is encouraged. It's developed. There are spaces of ignorance. There are locations of ignorance. And they grow and they're, they're, they're organised through the, um, a relationship between power and information. You see, I'm older, so I thought having more information was going to help. <laughs> I thought I didn't realize it was going to be something that made us inert because we're drowning in information, a lot of which is untrue, wrong, bogus hmm. uh, information. You know, so, so I think we have to develop a new politics of information, which is going to show us where power re really works. And that may not be with national governments. Yeah. It may be outside. These people, Aaron Banks and these people, you know, it's hard to work out what they want actually reading certainly what you can read the bad boys of brexit and it won't tell you what they want but they obviously want something and what they want isn't what the government wants isn't what national forces want it's some it's some it's something else you know so we've got to find that i think a lot of ordinary people have needs and wants that are at odds with what the government is offering also oh, that's true too yeah and i think that possibly genuine change like when you if when you you began this conversation paul talking about uh, our national britain's national identity as a sort of a as a colonial power neo-colonial power that what our history actually is and it makes me think that the nation state the sovereign state is concealed a lot of ills a lot of cruelty and a lot of exploitation <laughs> And and it's evident that the people who have suffered most are the people that are initially excluded mm. from that national state identity, the people that are outside of the soil, whether it's colonised nations mm. or mm. prisoners on Guan at Guantanamo Bay, mm. outside of the parameters mm -hmm. uh, of American sovereignty. But second, perhaps, to the, those suffering that are outside of the national narrative are the people that are included within it. Like you said, that Orwell quote, that, you know, the, I like that, that the British working class rule in, in India. But, like, it seems that we need a different kind of story about who we are yeah. as a people and that that is going to be at odds with, I, I feel like, the um, sort of the, the veil of national identity because what is it really? What is it to a, a, a British... But what is it? You like the football team, the food? Where is that really? What are mm. those connections? What mm. is it that you actually want? Um, for me, like, 
and this is where I, like the sort of drum I always start banging is like that because I feel that a component of an individual's identity, if it, if a person doesn't have access to some kind of transcendent and spiritual identity on an individual level, it's difficult for them to make connections with people on a kind of uh, what do I want to say non pejorative, non non judgmental basis. If I sort of like as I get older and as part of my personal recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, I've had to develop a, a, a sort of a connection that is not about, oh, I'm Russell, this is what I want, this is what I'm afraid of, this is where I want other people to see me. I've had to develop a, this is who I am in relationship to the unknown. This is who I am where I interface with consciousness that is impersonal. Do you think that a spiritual dimension to change is important? When you talk about the liquidity, when you talk about that liquidity of identity, I feel that this is somehow connected to the idea of a, a, an identity that is not solid, not only the soil of the land, but the soil of the person, your individual sovereignty. There needs to be a fluidity to that, that I am beyond, where did I get the beliefs about who I am and where I stand and what I believe in and what I stand for? That there needs to be a fluid, if I have fluidity in my personal identity, there is a possibility of an intersection with all people's identity. I think that's, I think I can understand that. I suppose I, I think that how one cultivates a relationship with oneself, which is not going to mean that your self-hatred is, well, it's like yeast or something, you know, brewing away. It's in there. It's got its own dynamic. And that, that self-hatred turns outward in the form of racism or nationalism or xenophobia. I think those those things, those forces in the world are ultimately, I'm not talking about the political ideology of it what the government's telling you to do or who's uh-huh. being kept out of the country and herded into a barbed wire compound because their life isn't isn't so valuable i'm talking about the people who who feel those things and f- whose lives we have to intervene in in order to change the situation we have to give them a different idea of themselves that's what i hear you saying you have you found a way for yourself you have to give those people a different idea of themselves you have to give them something instead of that nationalism instead of that racism instead of that self-hatred that's been turned outwards you offer them the chance to create a different relationship with otherness a different relationship with themselves i think you're right to do that and i don't but i don't know how to do that in a situation where what you're calling a, a spiritual identity is is not something that is prized or valued. This is not the culture. I don't want to be too, you know, binary about it, mm. this or that, sheep, goat, etc. But this is a body culture. This isn't a spiritual culture. Yeah. Black wives, if you, you never saw a T-shirt that said, black minds matter, did you? You you, you, you know, black lives matter. It's, it's body, um, you know, it's and it relates to really big sociological and political changes with regard to how long people live and how as people begin to live longer the nature of their if they've got property they won't give it to their children they'll give it to their partners or whatever there are complicated economic arguments about the way in which living longer is changing our social lives and changing our habits so i think how you in a culture of the body offer people a way of thinking about themselves in a spiritual way, which might be healing and might yield other benefits with regard to their fear of otherness, their fear of the outside. I don't know the answer to that. I can see that that's part of it, but I don't know how you could sell that because that's partly always something that's going to be an individual journey in a way. Yes. I mean, I know I'm a fugitive from Christianity. I was a choir boy. I went to school in a time when there were certain things about, you know, the Church of England that were reproduced in the education that people had in primary school. You know, that was 
what we were given as a moral compass with which to manage the challenges that opened up in front of us. And it, it wasn't it wasn't worthless, actually. Uh. It wasn't worthless. It wasn't. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. What value is there? What value is in that well, Christian it, education? Even if you don't. Even if you don't. Well, the, the challenge of loving thy neighbour as thyself. Even if we know everywhere we look, we see that being profaned and 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 turned into a into a into a, a violent, you know, joke. Really, <laughs> it's still there in, in as a kind of aspiration, as a horizon in the back of your mind that the, there might be a possibility. I mean, you know, Mrs. Thatcher. Remember her. Oh yeah. She she used to talk about the um the Good Samaritan and her version of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that? Was all about how the Good Samaritan, the real, real way of understanding that story was because he was rich, he was able to help. Uh, right. Geez, and what's interesting to me about that story is that she forgets the Samaritan was a foreigner. Uh, you see? So the fact of him being a stranger in that little moral tableau which is offered in that story drops out of sight completely. That's brilliant. She just found a way of making this about... So what we need is more rich people, Samaritans, you know, to do rich Samaritan stuff with asset stripping of our yeah, national industries. Exactly. That's fantastic, the way that... Yes, and I suppose you're saying that's an example of how the sort of Christian theology has been continually reappropriated. And made for... into something else in a post-secular world where people don't know what's in the Bible and are not going to find out. And I'm not saying the Church of England has the answers. I'm just offering it as a... I'm just trying to remind you that that, that journey you talk about towards a spiritual response, which is a richer and a yeah. healthier one in the face of the demands of otherness, is something that, that could have had support from some versions of Christianity yes. and still does. And all of that is being hemorrhaged away. From the culture. Because the individual spiritual journey, I think, is important because when you, like, regardless of which country it's in or what argument we're engaged with, if, like, say, whether it's, you know, like, the fuel for Trump is anger, hatred, yeah. the fuel for division in any country is anger, hatred. If we can somehow ameliorate the fuel, if people are not feeling hatred, if people at least begin to understand what their rage is on an individual level in a different way. Well, there's that possibility. There's also perhaps... Um, the idea that you might channel that rage in a more appropriate direction. Oh, you think that rage can be useful? I do. I do think. I don't. I don't. I do think rage is useful. I don't think you can have political change without there being some rage. You don't think there passive has to be people rage. that are sat perfectly no, still? No, no, are gonna no. Especially not the when they're hunched over their computer, you know, looking at the things that they already are being fed by the people that want them to stay in that bubble. No, You're of course right. there has to be. There has to be rage. Hunched is not a good starting point for revolution. Right, let's get nice and hunched. <laughs> now let's overthrow the government. Um, but what, you know, like, uh, I'm interested of the commitment to non-violence uh, significant civil rights media, um, uh, leaders have had yeah. and, and the success that those movements have enjoyed. Yeah. Do you think that that's uh, uh, something that Brad Evans talked about, yeah. a commitment to non-violence? But I suppose at the moment, I suppose one of the, the before there is an, uh, a commitment to non-violence, at the moment it seems that there's not really a direct understanding of what the cause is, of what the idea is, of what the intention is, of where it is we're supposed to be going. And that's why I suppose that the re-emergence of what was being called sort of like open racism, of uh, nationalism of uh, uh, different forms of prejudice and the need for new words like Islamophobia has emerged because mm. people can't envisage a different kind of post-national identity. Yeah. I think that's right, and people can't imagine a different world, actually. Mm. Maybe that Christian theology, like the music we talked about, there are these things that offer you the chance or encourage you to, uh, to imagine the world differently. 
and people are, for a range of reasons, to do with the technological world they're in, to do with the, the loss of uh, opportunities that they experience, to do with the growth of inequality in the country, have begun to lose the ability to imagine anything other than the world we inhabit. In a way, what's interesting to me is the, with the re-emergence of nationalism is it that, that the, the component that has been identified as a rejection of globalisation. Yes. And, and I wonder how, if perhaps, globalisation for all of the you know evident, terrifying, negative damage that it has caused perhaps could deliver unto us a different way of thinking about the world. Now, like in the sort of, like, I, I think often about centralised power and the need to decentralise... Yeah, I think that's true. Power. I think that's true. Although I worry that many of the critics of globalization are people who retreat into nationalism. Yeah. And and actually that's where we can't go. That's the one place where we know that the disaster will only be compounded if yes. we go in that direction because you can't have utopia in one country. You can't have socialism. We learned that in the 20th century. That's not going to work. So we have to find another way of of thinking, rethinking who we are, dare I say this, as British people in the light of that diversity. And, and you t- you've talked a lot about solidarity. So, you know, maybe we have to find some new vehicles for that solidarity or we have to find some old vehicles for that solidarity that we can remake, we can repair them, we can brighten them up a bit and make them seem more attractive, more useful in the journey that we've got in front of us now. I'm thinking about, about ideas of class, for example, that could be, you know, that could be brought back to life in ways that correspond to how people live. You know, I, I, go on the, I go on the underground. You've never mentioned this. Let me write that down. <laughs> Uses public transport right. diligently. Right. So, you know, I see people with lanyards around their necks. Everywhere I go, there's a, there's a member of the lanyard proletariat with some badge with a string around their neck. And I, I sit there thinking to myself, if you could speak to the experience of exploitation, of immiseration that comes with wearing a lanyard around your neck as a worker... We'd be in a different game. They're wearing them in class. there, you know. Everyone in there's got there one on. Are. They're all lanyarded up. The people that work with me, Gareth, the producer of the show, Jenny, who does all the tech on the show, the people here so. at IMG have kindly given us their facility. What do you mean? Because it's a way of like tagging yourself and badging yourself. And what, what well, do you I'm, think I'm it indicates? That, that's the working class. I'm sorry, you might not like like that, but that the lanyard. Thank God, there's a glass screen between <laughs> me and them. That's what I will say. <laughs> no, in a city like London, you've got to you've got to address those people. And, as, and you've got to find in their experience something that goes beyond the personal, private misery that they suffer at work. You've got to be able to make that social again. We've got to socialise their deep personal and private misery. We've got to understand where people's identity actually dwells now. I understand you see me as a famous person because I've been a famous person for a while, but I kind of don't self-identify as a famous person anymore. I'm trans-famous, you know, like I'm sort of returning to my previous identity of the person that was from Greys in Essex that's Mm -hmm. got a lot of questions that haven't been answered by the narrative that I was offered of fame and celebrity. Mm. It's I didn't find the solution there. Mm. I had a good bloody look round and I had Mm -hmm. a go at some of the recreational activities Mm. and I must say I probably overused some of them. But like really, the reason that I'm having these conversations is because I, I want to learn about different types of solution. And I've learned a great deal from this conversation. Thank you very well, much, thank Professor. You. Thanks for having me. That was Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Next week, we've got another fantastic guest. It's Adam Curtis. You know his documentaries. You know his blog. He's absolutely fantastic. It's going to be a wonderful show. Remember, Under the Skin is brought to you by our sponsors, those corporate swines at 
Russell Brand Rebirth Tour. Go and see me in Woking or Oxford or Southport. Those dates are all in May. Or Aylesbury, Watford, Skegness. Those dates are in June. You can get tickets at russellbrand.com. Remember to give me a five-star review. Remember to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Thanks very much for coming on this journey of education and liberation with me under the skin, Russell Brand.